and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and on today's show, we asked the Santa Barbara community, what's your best parenting advice? The first is model good behavior. It's really hard to tell your children not to be on a screen if you're on your screen all the time. So you really have to model good behavior for health and wellness for your kids. The second is ask more questions. Kids don't always tell you a lot, so you have to ask questions and dig deep. The third is let your child pursue their interests. They might not be the same as yours, but it could open you up to a whole new community. And the last one is really encourage independence. Your kids will value being able to do things on their own. And it's scary. It's scary to let go, but they will become really great adults if you give them that independence as they're young. All of us already have the answers deep within that everything our kids need, we already have. And at the end of the day, all our kids really need is our attention, attunement, and our deep nurture. They need connection and comfort. They don't need rigidity. They need regulation. They need to borrow our calm amidst their chaos. The reality that despite the pull to purchase and to perform, kids don't need that from us. They don't need the latest gear and gadgets. They need graciousness and groundedness. And they don't need new techniques or training. They need nurture. They need presence over perfection. So the work in parenting seems to be tuning out the noise and tuning into our intuition. Remind yourself during good times and in bad times that it won't always be like this. It can give you a little bit of hope during times of total frustration and desperation. And it can also just shine a little bit more important on the good times because things change really, really quickly with a little one. So humans weren't meant to be raised or live in a society as fiercely individualistic as the United States. So asking for help or connection is not a sign of weakness, but it's a sign of your humanity. And if it feels like you're drowning in parenthood, it's important to speak up and ask for what you need and ask for help and friendship and accept it when it's offered. And then conversely, I would say go above and beyond to help when you can, whether that's something as small as buying someone a cup of coffee at Handlebar if they have a screaming child and they just look like they're at the end of their rope or as big as donating to a scholarship fund so a low-income parent can actually not have to worry about sending their kid to daycare. My best parenting advice is to really get sort of clear about the boundaries between how I felt as a kid versus what my kid is going through so that he can just be his own person. This has been such a big deal this summer because he is 11 and I clearly remember being 11 and it is so easy for me to want to sort of govern him and help him make the decisions, but realizing like this is his life and his journey. So it, it makes our relationship better when I let him be who exactly who he is going to be. That was Anna Papakian, Brittany Chambers, Kelly Cottrell, Jet Black Mertz, and Julia Mayer speaking about their best parenting advice. Today, the Santa Barbara Independent released the Indie Parenting Guide Online, a collection of articles, resources, and testimonies all about parenting. On this episode, I sat down with Tyler Hayden and Leslie Dynaberg, two editors at The Independent, to chat about some of the pieces they wrote for the guide. My name is Tyler Hayden. I'm a senior editor here at The Independent. 
Um, and I covered for the parenting guide a few different topics. Um, one of them being uh, what I'm calling dumbed down meals for dumbed down dads. <laughs> so it's like quick and easy recipes uh, for a weeknight for dads who may not be super familiar with the kitchen, but are quickly becoming so maybe at a necessity. Um, and then I did a wrap up of, of parks in town that are good for younger kids, for toddlers. We all know kids world uh, downtown, how great and popular it is. Um, but it can be, it can get really crowded. And if your little one is not super coordinated yet, or still kind of learning the ropes, literally, um, it can be fun to explore other, other smaller parks that have maybe more age appropriate structures and layouts and all that good stuff. I'll start with those two, but yeah, as, as Leslie said, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm running point on, on the parenting guide. Um, so I'm, I'm working with different writers and contributors about a, a variety of, of topics, um, everything from pediatric dentistry to um, screen time for kids to high school prep. So it, it really runs the gamut. I'm Leslie Dineberg, and I'm the arts, culture, and community editor for The Independent. And um, I wrote a story for the launch um, issue that's about um, parenting and friendship and interviewed actually a dear friend of mine um, about some of the long-term friendships that she made through her kids. And I uh, have written about parenting a lot <laughs> over the years, um, but uh, I'm an old parent <laughs> at this point. Uh, I sent her 24 <laughs> this week. So it's kind of fun because we have a lot of new parents or younger parents um, at the independent right now. So I'm getting uh, to sort of look back on some of those early phases with nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess I should say too, I'm a, I'm a new first time parent. And yeah, we do have a lot of younger parents uh, here at the paper right now. People are just having babies left and right, it seems like. And, but then we also have a lot of seasoned, experienced parents who have figured it all out. Right? Oh yeah, they right. Know, know how to do it perfectly from beginning to end. It's a, it's a great group of perspectives we have here and that we're also getting from out in the community as well. Yeah, no, that's funny that you say that. I always said I did my very best parenting before I ever had a kid because you realize how hard it is. <laughs> well, Leslie and Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And although at times every parent might not feel like it, every mother or father surely has a lot of expertise in what they do as a parent. So you both touched on this a little bit, but can you tell me more about your family? How many kids do you have and what are their ages? I have a son named Finley who just turned 15 months and he's our he's our first don't know if he'll be our only yet but um we're we're busy enough at the moment where we're not even thinking about that but it's been it's been fun and great and terrifying and hard and everything in the middle and uh yeah I mean it, I appreciate you saying that parents become experts Alexandra that I don't know I, I don't I don't know if that's quite true <laughs> maybe someday I'll, I'll feel like one in, in some areas but one of the lessons I think we keep hearing is that you know there's no one right way to do things and everybody have has their own experiences and their own tips and tricks um, and you kind of pull from from different resources and and make it your own strategy yeah that makes sense um I just have one child, one son, Koss, who's um, turning 24 this week. It's hard to believe. 
He grew up in Santa Barbara and uh, has since graduated from college and um, is now actually uh, taking care of himself for the most part. Um, he lives in the Bay Area. Uh, so I'm, you know, definitely at that next phase. Yeah. So Tyler, first of all, congratulations on kind of the the step into fatherhood and Leslie in that kind of empty nester phase, as we like to call it with college grads and college students who leave the home to go take care of themselves. Like you mentioned, I love it. So did you both raise your families in Santa Barbara? Um, yeah, I did. And actually my husband and I both uh, grew up in Santa Barbara. So um, not only did we raise our family here, but we were both raised here um, and um, have multiple family members and um, aunts and cousins and grandparents around town. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I came down here for college. I graduated UCSB and uh, have been here since. My wife's from Goleta originally. Um, and yeah, we plan on plan on raising Finley here. Hope we can. Hope we can afford to do so. But it's a, it's clearly kind of a paradise for kids. So we'd like to stay as long as we can. Yeah. Well, this is a great segue into my first question, which touches on the piece that Leslie wrote. How, as a parent, is the best way to go about making friends with other parents or the parents of your kids' friends? I feel like there's all kinds of different ways to make friends. And um, it's certainly one of the things I learned as a parent um, is, you know, you have people that you connect with really easily that, you know, are going to be um, your friends, regardless of whether your kids stay friends or, you know, stay in the same schools or activities and that sort of thing. But there's also <laughs> an element to parental friendships that sort of, um, it's almost like having work colleagues where, um, you know, you're at the same phase, you're sharing information, you're carpooling, you're, um, you know, cooperating on various school projects and um, volunteer work and that sort of thing. And that's kind of a different type of friendship that, you know, sometimes grows into uh, really deep friendships. And, and sometimes, you know, you love these people, but you only see them for a certain period of time. And, um, you know, maybe once a year, or a couple times a year after that. When I was thinking about this, some of the things that came to mind is attending your kids' sports practices or games and being able to sit with other parents in the stands or volunteering in school PTA and in, in, in the classroom. And I have to shout out my mom. She always talks about how she made her first group of friends in Gymboree, which are the baby and toddler classes and playtime classes. So that is just kind of a tidbit that I've heard from my mom growing up. And for all of the dog moms out there, Leslie, I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your piece, but for all the dog moms like myself, any ideas come to mind about where to meet friends with a furry friend? <laughs> that would be a Tyler question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my furry friends are they're home of their cats, so we don't we don't go out a lot. But I, I do know, and I do have a couple of friends who have met folks specifically, um, other dog parents at, at the Newish McKenzie dog park. That's that's a popular spot, and then actually through um, like canine training schools, there's there's a few really good ones in town. Canine Solutions, I know, is a great one, and yeah, you know, I don't know if we have a ton of like dog parks, but there's a lot of off leash dog areas too to explore. You know, Henry's Beach, and uh, I think is Wilcox 
off leash. Anyway, there, there's there's a number of kind of get together spots where I know people, you know, meet and chat and and make friendships. Yeah, I think Shoreline Park is another big one. Shoreline, totally on yeah. leash, but because they have a good playground and a good place to walk dogs, there's a good intersection of the parents of all types there. And now speaking of parks, Tyler, I know you wrote a piece on some of the best parks in Santa Barbara County. So can you talk a little bit more about the places that you chose? Sure. So I, I decided to, well, first of all, there's there's a ton of great parks all over the county, especially here in Santa Barbara, South Coast. Um, I decided for the purposes of this piece to narrow it down to uh, parks in the city uh, though I chose, I, I specifically chose parks in kind of all our different neighborhoods. So the east side, the west side, up on the Mesa, Hidden Valley, um, that have play structures for, for two to five-year-olds. So play structures I've found from going to a bunch of them over the last year or so are, are like rated for different age groups. There's two to five, two to 12, and five to 12. And um, our little guy, you know, only started walking a few months ago, um, but already starts, you know, I started to want to climb things, including, you know, our coffee table and cat tree and anything else he can, he can scale. So I, I just, I wanted to focus on the parks that like cater specifically to his, his age and ability. And then again, don't get too, too crowded, you know, that, that have places to run around either on open spaces or walking paths um, or near actually like, you know, restaurants and places for, whole families to go to. So yeah, it, it was it was a fun wrap up that I hope helps people uh, not only branch out from kids world, but check out other other parts of the city, you know, explore other areas. There's all sorts of cool little neighborhoods you wouldn't really know about unless you have a reason to go. And uh, I think this is this is a good reason. Our favorite these days is Stevens Park, which is kind of hidden a little bit in, in, in San Roque. But it's great. It's actually the beginning of the Hezacita Trail also. Um, it goes under the overpass and, and goes way up in the in the mountains if you want to, but you don't have to walk far to hit the creek. And there's there's great swings for little ones, you know, the bucket swings, because you need those. There's there's great spots all around. The city is full of options, but not a ton for the little ones. So that's kind of what I wanted to help parents narrow down. Yeah, that's a great little park. We spent a lot of a lot of hours uh, hunting frogs in that creek. There you go. Yeah, great. Yeah, and especially in the summertime when the weather is nice and it's good to get outside and play outside. And I mean, hosting this entire episode is pretty nostalgic for me because I remember the days, the park days, so clearly. And I feel like I can just go on and on about how special it is for a kid with a big imagination to play outside, be active, go digging. Leslie, like you said, go hunting for frogs and and just kind of imagine whatever you want to during playtime. So now I, I would love if you could both comment on this next question. Um, what is some good advice for busy moms and dads preparing meals? Tyler, you mentioned that your piece is on this, but I would also love to get the mom perspective too. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> 
You start, Leslie. I just laugh because, I, you know, I've been writing about food and restaurants for decades now, and I am really not a very good cook. Uh, so <laughs> simple is best for sure. Um, Trader Joe's has a lot of awesome, really quick and easy, um, you know, mostly um, prefixed kind of meals that kids love. Um we used to do a lot of uh, cutting things into small pieces and, you know, uh, cheese and crackers and apples and, and that sort of thing. And I like to make something that lasts for a couple of nights if I can. Um, but I am definitely not a great, um, you know, person to ask about prepping things in the kitchen. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I definitely agree with the you know cooking for a couple nights you know a couple nights a few days um having leftovers for lunch is is huge i i really only started cooking in any kind of real way though i, I mean I'm, i don't mean to like overstate my skills but i but i kind of figured started to find my way around the kitchen a little bit better during the pandemic and i feel like that kind of carried over with the birth of finley because i figured out pretty quick my role as a dad while Chelsea was uh, recovering and, and nursing um, was to feed everybody. <laughs> and I pretty quickly started to gravitate towards definitely a lot of Trader Joe's stuff, but then also kind of combining Trader Joe's stuff. And that's actually one of the recipes is taking like four or five different ingredients you can get from Trader Joe's and combining them. So in this, in one instance in the stories like one pot orzo with orzo and sausage pre-made sausage and a bell pepper and onion and i'm forgetting the fifth ingredient but it's, it's one pot you do it all together and it lasts for a couple of days and it's really it's really tasty and it's like a slight step up from you know a frozen meal everything's fresh but not complicated and not you know super fussy and not a lot of cleanup so that's the kind of stuff I've I've been doing. And then my wife follows a lot of sort of mom food blogger types. And I'm not on social media a ton these days, so she, but she sends me stuff. And a lot of them are, are really great, like the um, pancake recipe that is also in the story, which is just oats, banana, a little bit of spinach, an egg. Um, and I think that's kind of it. Um, no flour needed. Blend it all up and make a bunch of healthy mini green pancakes, kind of mini Hulk pancakes. So that's just that kind of stuff. It's It's been fun playing around and trying different things. I've definitely screwed up a bunch and made some like really bad meals, but these are the ones that I've done at least a few times and, and they've always worked out pretty well. So I want to keep adding to adding to the list if people find it helpful. So you're telling me that with a newborn, you can't eat takeout and pizza every night. <laughs> you can definitely, definitely do that. But yeah, it, you know, it starts getting expensive and it starts getting a little, a little much if you, <laughs> if you rely on takeout too much. Absolutely. And those easy Trader Joe's one pot meals, I mean, the, the nutrition values there as well more so than takeout and pizza, of course. Well, before we wrap up this conversation, is there anything either of you would like to add? You know, this resource guide is really, this is the launch of it coming up, but it's really 
going to be a long-lasting and and growing resource for for parents here in town. So, you know, if people want to write in with their ideas or suggestions or are curious about something that they want to see covered, uh, you know, we would we would love to to hear it. So don't be shy. Yeah, that's the part I think I'm most excited about is uh, kind of the reader participation angle and stories that we're going to get from people, uh, you know, not just story ideas, which of course are welcome, but also kind of their own stories about how they uh, deal with these various challenges and various things. I always love that kind of stuff. Yeah, and actually, Alexander, I should mention another another piece that's going to be going up um, is it's kind of exactly what what Leslie just described. There are um, stories from readers about unexpected lessons they've learned about being parents. So maybe not something they they thought they would learn or need to learn, but is you know has become an important part of their of their lives as as parents. So that's that's been really cool to see. You know, we we put out the the question over social media and in our newsletter and got dozens and dozens of responses, and we whittled it down to about 10, I think, I think is a good cross section of all the fun, heartwarming, heart, heartbreaking, interesting moments that the parents have as they're, they're learning how to do it, learning how to parent. Yeah. Um, one more thing I will add about just talking about takeout food is uh, we had a <laughs> whole group of friends that for years, I mean, probably, I don't know, eight years, 10 years, we would meet almost every Friday night, um, either at the beach or at the mission at the Rose Garden, everyone would just bring, you know, burritos or sandwiches or whatever they picked up um, and, and their kids. And we'd let the kids run around, you know, we, the parents would hang out. Um, and it was just such a nice way to get together. Um, and it was super simple and you kind of knew that, you know, at least even though you're working and you're taking care of your family and you're exhausted, um, you would have that Friday night get together, um, to look forward to. Um, and so that's something I would totally recommend to young families is, you know, just pick a place. It's easy. You don't have to agree on the food because everybody just brings their own. The kids don't all have to be the same age um, and just go hang out and get yourself out of the house and have fun. <laughs> that's a great idea. Well, Leslie, I'm I'm glad you ended on that note because that's kind of the ultimate intersection of food, friends, and the outdoors, which are the three topics that we've touched on today. So thank you so much, uh, Leslie and Tyler, for coming on the show today. And the Complete Parenting Guide with all of this and much more has officially launched on sbindependent.com. So check out our website for more parenting advice. Next up, we're breaking down the law. I was joined by William C. Mackler, Santa Barbara criminal defense attorney, to talk about what parents should know about youth rights and what to do if your child gets involved with the police. We dove into how to have these tough conversations with your children and also discussed the bigger picture of the juvenile justice system. So I generally want listeners to get a sense of how they can be the best prepared on what to do if their kid gets involved with a police officer and how they can have these conversations with their kids so they know what to do and say in these situations. So first of all, what rights do minors have when they are confronted by the police? And do any of these differ from adult rights? Minors are clothed with the same rights that adults have 
except for a couple things. One is if they're in juvenile justice, which is the, the minor equivalent of criminal justice, although it's not considered criminal, it's civil. It's important to make a note of that early and often. They are not entitled to a jury trial. They, do, they are not entitled to, to have the case adjudicated by their peers in the same way that adults are. They also don't have a right to bail. But in every other way, they are protected by the United States Constitution, the California Constitution. Those are some very powerful protections. And in terms of Miranda rights and searches and seizures, what about if a child is confronted by the police? What stands here? When you say confronted by the police, I think I'll narrow it to, are they under investigation? I guess the word confronted implies that it's other than just a pleasant encounter uh, that a police officer might want to have with any member of the community. But if there's any suspicion or risk in the mind of the parents or the child that they may be under investigation or they simply don't know, then they want to be protective and observe their own constitutional rights. But when you're speaking about Miranda, California law has actually changed very dramatically in that it's no longer necessary for a minor to either understand or invoke their Miranda rights. Miranda rights are often thought of as the sum total of all the rights someone has when they're confronted by the police, and that's really a profound misunderstanding. What Miranda has to do with primarily is people giving confessions to crime or even making damaging admissions. And it's generally thought of as a bad idea just to start talking to the police. For one reason is you haven't had a chance really to gather and collect yourself. You might be very nervous. You might actually not even know what they're investigating. And they might cherry pick, not necessarily maliciously, but take things that you said out of context and use them against you in making their arrest decision or in writing their report and so forth. So you really want to be cautious in that in that case, but a minor no longer needs to, legally speaking, be concerned about that because they it is mandated. The police should know this. I think it's catching on for the most part, maybe not entirely. So it'd be worth saying, ask for a lawyer, ask to speak with a lawyer before you give any such statement. You can identify yourself, sure, but you are not under good advice to speak to a member of law enforcement or a member of the probation office without having first consulted a lawyer. And California law, again, uh, within the last couple of years, starting in 2021, but now requires that a minor, someone under the age of 18, when under investigation, whether it takes place out in the street, wherever it is, or in school, if they are being interviewed by a police officer, they must first meet with the lawyer in private and discuss with that competent, qualified lawyer whether it's even a good idea to make any kind of statement to the police. So that largely protects minors in California against the potential danger of being manipulated, intimidated, or otherwise perhaps giving a false confession. Thanks for bringing up that law. That's California law set at Bill 203 that was signed in September of 2020. Like you said, that says that a minor cannot waive their rights to Miranda rights until they speak with an attorney. So my next question is, how should parents go about having these conversations with their kids and prep their children to be prepared if this situation occurs for them? As a civil libertarian myself, I think it's always a good idea to educate your children about what's special about the United States, how we guarantee the rights of the individual, 
And those are powerful protections. And as soon as you think your child is capable of understanding things as complex, and I'd say anytime starting maybe 12 and on, why not have those kinds of conversations and talk about how it's important to protect the innocent uh, and how there are instances of, of people being wrongly accused and wrongly convicted. We see it all the time in the general media about people being exonerated by DNA, for instance. And I think everyone growing up in this society, in our democracy, should understand that police can make mistakes. Prosecutors can make mistakes. Judges even can make mistakes. And so one has to be protective of their own well-being if they might ever end up being under suspicion of anything. And that includes all of us. It's not just the other or the reckless and kids that you feel like are constantly pushing boundaries and you know taking risks. It could be anybody could be uh, under investigation by the police. And so talking to your kids about their important rights, their right to remain silent if questioned is a good idea. Their right to uh, talk to a lawyer, excellent idea. Because you know when you enter into the system, if you will, if you're being inducted into it by being contacted by a police officer who may already have the intention to detain you, maybe already believing that you did something wrong, whether you did or didn't, it's time to be a little bit defensive and not just launch into some story or explanation that may or may not help you in the end avoid being found guilty or face more, more harsh consequences than you otherwise should have. There's a couple of different things at play. So, you know, not all of us are lawyers and not all of us have that background, but we all should remember that we are all protected by the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and that clothes us with very important protections in relative to our dealings with the police, including the right against self-incrimination, the right against warrantless and unreasonable search and seizure, the right to a lawyer, uh, in, in, particularly in, in criminal matters or in, in, as I say, in juvenile matters, and so these are important things to tell your kids, but there's a different conversation to have about how to better protect your kids from legal trouble. And that goes to sort of some core issues as far as are they running with the wrong crowd to put it in folksy terms? Are they showing signs of mental health problems? Are they showing signs of drug problems? Are they acting out? Are they withdrawn? Do, is their mental and physical health where it should be? How are they doing in school? Parents need to actually start looking at those things with their children if they're not. I mean, I think inherently you are, as a parent, concerned with those things, but really try to identify problems before they uh, become so inflamed that you're ending up having to deal with the crisis of your child being interviewed by a police officer. You don't ever want to deal with that. You would want to address these problems before they sprout into things that would create contacts with uh, the juvenile justice system, police departments, police officers, probation officers, uh, child welfare even, as an, an adjunct to juvenile justice. You, you really want to start looking at your child as a, as a whole picture and not simply hope that they you know, guard their right against self-incrimination by the time they're talking to a police officer. By then, that could be a, a, an example of something having gone a bit too far 
And it would be terrible to look back and realize that you could have done something to stop whatever problem was developing. And that would go to taking advantage of community-based organizations, uh, private therapy, uh, counselors at school, uh, so many things uh, that you could do to address the problem before it ever involves the police. And directly in response to that, you mentioned some resources like organizations, therapies, counselors, but what other resources come to mind that parents should be aware of, both to educate themselves on law and to respond effectively if their child gets into legal trouble? Well, one of my dear colleagues uh, passed away a couple of years ago, Tara Holland Ford, uh, founded with others uh, a few organizations, and one of which comes to mind is the Teen Legal Clinic, the Santa Barbara Teen Legal Clinic. And that would be an excellent place to start just to examine what legal issues may be emerging in your child's life, whether it be a juvenile justice issue or a school expulsion issue or a family law custody issue. The Teen Legal Clinic is meant to empower youth in particular, but can also be a resource for parents and working together with their child, their teen, they could reach out to that clinic and become more educated and empowered as to what their legal rights are. And they could be referred various places depending on what the volunteers there, the skilled volunteers, end up determining their best uh, course of action would be or what referral they might make. But the organizations that I was thinking of just a moment ago that you know are so important to have on your speed dial, so to speak, would be the community-based organizations. In South County, we have organizations such as uh, the Family Services Agency, CALM. We have Daniel Bryant, which is a wing of the uh, Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse, uh, dealing with a variety of problems that develop uh, in youth, you know, drug problems, anger management problems, uh, mental health problems, problems within the home, interactions uh, amongst family members, uh, any child that's, say, dealt with trauma in their life, not necessarily abuse. Of course, that is among the things that can lead to behavioral issues and risky behavior and drug drugs as a self-medication tool often. There are other things that happen in people's lives, adverse experiences that need to be dealt with in a therapeutic setting. The child may not be comfortable talking with their teacher, their pediatrician, their parent even, or their sibling about something terrible that they've witnessed or gone through. But in a confidential therapeutic setting, say in one-on-one -on -one counseling, for example, that could be an excellent opportunity to start processing uh, trauma and dealing with it so that it doesn't become something that the child or person themselves chooses to remedy by some of the more, I'd say, convenient but highly destructive and risky modes, which would be alcohol and drugs, or you know the ways young people distract themselves, risky behaviors, risky sex, risky driving, all sorts of things people do to sort of get their mind off of something unpleasant so that they don't have to deal with it. The message is deal with it. I think it's important for parents primarily, but all community members invested in the well-being of kids including teachers, coaches, pediatricians, other healthcare providers, to be on alert, to be able to recognize trouble. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with just asking your child 
what's going on? What, what is it that you're happy about? What is it that you're sad about? And try to develop a better understanding of what it is that may need support. What can we support that's positive in, in the child's life? And if they're acting out, uh, hopefully before they're getting in trouble with the police, hopefully before they're running away, hopefully before they're staying out late with older kids or kids who are taking unreasonable risks with their health and safety and legal well-being, parents would be able to, in a kind and constructive way, help their child arrive at a, a better place through seeking support in the community. Thank you for sharing those resources and for sharing your words. And before we wrap up this conversation, is there anything else you would like to add that you want listeners to know or that we haven't talked about yet during this conversation? Thank you for the opportunity to go a little bit further into my concerns. Um, I do want to say something about racial and ethnic disparities within the juvenile justice system. Of course, uh, we've all remembered George Floyd and and, and are familiar with the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think it's important to say that those problems are ongoing. And I credit the legislature and many organizations and actors within government for uh, remedying some of the problems, but we still have a long way to go. To me, it's somewhat noteworthy and maybe cause for celebration that uh, the Division of Juvenile Justice, DJJ, it's known as which is formerly CYA, which is formerly the youthful prison system of the state of California, is no longer. It completely closed its doors and operations just this month. And that marks a new era. I think juvenile justice reform, as we know it, started back in the 90s, but it's taken a long time to recognize that the system itself was quite unfair. How was it unfair? It was more, much more likely at every stage, whether it be people calling the police uh, more so on uh, black and brown people so that more black and brown people would get contacted by the police at the outset. And then police officers with as many people in society being infected with uh, bias would make the decision more often than they would with similarly situated white uh, youth to arrest black and brown youth. And then they would be taken to probation where there'd be more uh, implicit bias in the courts and the DA's office and, and so forth. And the consequences of this disparate treatment was extreme. If you look at the numbers, uh, for instance, DJJ, the youthful prison system and CYA before it had almost entirely black and brown inmates. There was a small percentage of white inmates. If that doesn't tell you that something's terribly wrong, I don't know what will. So these kinds of structural, institutional, racial bias have been around for as long as we've been around, as long as the United States has been around since slavery. And we've come a long way, but we have a lot further to go to make sure that at all points, uh, there's equitable treatment of people with diverse racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, and of course, uh, developmental differences as well. I mean, there's, there's many different uh, vulnerable groups, disempowered groups that have been treated really rotten by our juvenile justice system. And for that reason, I promote, as do many, early intervention 
Diversion, another important uh, organization in town is named after my departed colleague, Tara Holland Ford, founded by her, is a uh, restorative justice pilot program, and it's partnering with uh, Santa Barbara County Probation, uh, as well as with the uh, school district, the uh, Santa Barbara Unified School District, to provide restorative justice as a diversion away from ordinary punitive measures. Restorative justice and other diversion programs that are being piloted and are otherwise in place are critical in terms of early intervention, in terms of uh, allowing someone who may have strayed from the path of legal conduct to right their course immediately in a way that doesn't shame them unnecessarily, in a way that doesn't traumatize them unnecessarily, and in a way that makes sense to them so that they really learn from their mistake. So I would ask anyone looking at juvenile justice to not just simply narrow their focus to what do you say to the police or not say to the police when they contact you, as important as that is. I think the real question is how do you avoid contact with the police to begin with? And for that, I would say take advantage of the resources that are out there, the ones that I've mentioned, and there are several others. There are knowledgeable people within the community that, that have referrals to give. I would also say be sensitive to the fact that our system has for so long been unfair and uh, we're working on it, um, but the best way to ensure fairness would be to help people stay out of the system. That includes people of color and includes Caucasians. We all need to stay out of the system. Well, Mr. Mackler, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and some of the historical and contextual factors that impact the juvenile justice system. And just thank you for coming on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Have a great day. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Indie and to stay up to date with the team, be sure to follow us at the Indie Pod on Instagram. From the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent, I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg. And as always, we'll see you next time, Santa Barbara.